Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. This podcast contains bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky, all presented in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. At the conclusion of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Edgar Allan Poe. Now let's get started with our story about Edgar Allan Poe. In the crowded pantheon of tragic literary figures, one would be hard-pressed to find a more star-crossed man of letters than Edgar Allan Poe. His father, David Poe, deserted him and his family when Poe was one, and David Poe died shortly thereafter. His mother passed away only days later, leaving Poe to be taken in by a Richmond family that donated his middle name and ultimately little else. Poe's brief stints at the University of Virginia, the U.S. Army, and West Point did little to indicate future literary success or even direction. His marriage to a 14-year-old first cousin, career-crushing alcoholism, and impetuous hostility, even to close colleagues, indicate an unstable and even obsessively self-destructive personality. When it finally arrived, literary fame and celebrity provided little material benefit. For The Raven, the poem that made Poe a national figure, he was paid $9. For The Telltale Heart, Poe initially received nothing, settling for what an economically challenged editor could ultimately scrounge, no more than a pittance. That his disappearance and death in the city of Baltimore still remain an enigma is only fitting for the inventor of the modern detective story. Even in the afterlife, Poe had the misfortune to select a literary executor intent on personal revenge and determined to paint Poe as a dissolute drunk and even immorally depraved. Poe was born Edgar Poe on January 19, 1809, in the city of Boston. His parents, David and Eliza, were actors that traveled a circuit along the eastern seaboard. His mother performed a week before his birth and would return again to the Boston stage a month later, which is indicative of the economic stability of Poe's family. David Poe had abandoned a career in law to try and achieve his wife's level of dramatic success. That he was unable to do so became a source of frustration and anger that eventually ended the marriage. He disappeared and was dead by 1811. Eliza took her three young children to Richmond, where she would contract tuberculosis and also die in 1811 on December 8th. Eliza's father-in-law was already raising Edgar's older brother, Henry, in Baltimore. William Mackenzie, a local Richmond merchant, assumed responsibility for Rosalie, Edgar's younger sister. Edgar would be taken in by Mr. and Mrs. John Allen, a reasonably prosperous, childless Richmond couple. Although they would never formally adopt Poe, they would add the Allen name, the source of Poe's full name, Edgar Allen Poe. In 1815, John Allen relocated the family to England for business reasons, and Edgar Allan Poe would attend a succession of boarding schools. Five years later, and not particularly successful, Allen and family would relocate back to Richmond. Here, Edgar Allan Poe would continue his formal education. Poe and his guardians seemed to have gotten more and more distant as the younger man matured. 
Allen's business affairs were compromised by the harsh economic climate of the early 1820s that forced him to dissolve his business partnership. By 1824, he was openly disparaging his ward in letters to Poe's siblings, characterizing him as selfish and ungrateful. However, John Allen's financial situation greatly improved in March 1825 when he inherited a considerable fortune, well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars from his uncle. Unfortunately, it did not seem to improve his relationship with Edgar Allan Poe. In February 1826, Poe enrolled in the University of Virginia. The school, the brainchild of Thomas Jefferson, was only a year old. It did not have the constraints of many of the other prestigious academic institutions of this time period. There was no mandatory attendance at chapel. In fact, religion was de-emphasized. Students were free to choose their own courses of enrollment and govern themselves, leading to a lack of discipline and an environment where rules concerning fighting, gambling, alcohol, and tobacco were routinely ignored. Whether it was insufficient or in his immaturity, Poe squandered whatever minimal financial support Allen had given him, the young student was unable to afford basic necessities. Attempting to find a way out of financial difficulties, he gambled and lost badly. By December 1826, with individuals contacting Allen in regards to debts run up by Edgar Allan Poe, John Allen went to Charlottesville, paid a few bills he considered legitimate, and refused to pay anything else. He removed Poe from the university and demanded that the young man return to Richmond, where he would be employed in one of Allen's business ventures, without salary. Back in Richmond, things got decidedly worse. Before leaving for the university, Poe had gotten involved in his first serious romance with a 15-year-old neighbor, Elmira Royster. Throughout his short-lived college career, Poe sent numerous letters to the young girl, but Elmira's father, aware of Poe's difficulties with his guardian, presumed that Poe would never be socially suitable for his daughter and intercepted all of this correspondence. Elmira, thinking that Poe no longer cared, got engaged to another man. Poe is now stuck in Richmond, in dreadful economic and professional straits, and heartsick over this latest development. His desperate frustration instigated a predictable next move. Poe's relationship with John Allen came to a head in March of 1827. Many of the letters between the two have been preserved, and one from Poe dated March 19th gives a pretty clear indication of the tension within the household. Again, I have heard you say, when you little thought I was listening, and therefore must have said it in earnest, that you had no affection for me. You have moreover ordered me to quit your house, and are continually upbraiding me with eating the bread of idleness. At this point, Poe had already made the decision to leave Richmond entirely. He decided upon Boston, the city where he was born, known already as a literary and publishing center. It is not known how he even paid for the journey, Perhaps John Allen's wife, Frances, with whom he still maintained a reasonably good relationship, lent him a modest amount of money. He dramatically told John Allen that he was leaving forever and would from then on make his own way in the world, but he clearly hadn't a clue how he would even survive, much less prosper. Perhaps in the back of his mind, an interest in literature motivated his choice of Boston. Poe was able to barely survive in his new surroundings for a short period of time, working in low-paying, tedious positions. However, less than six weeks after his arrival, he enlisted in the U.S. Army for a period of five years. While he most likely craved the security of such an institution, he must have been ashamed of this desperate turn of events. He enlisted under the name Edgar A. Perry, presumably so that no one who knew him 
would be able to determine the depths to which he had sunk. Surprisingly, Post seems to have adjusted to the routine and responsibilities of military life. Initially assigned to an artillery battery, because he was literate and educated, he became responsible for preparing payrolls, taking dictation for officers' letters, maintaining service rosters, and various other bureaucratic efforts that were not physically or mentally taxing. Perhaps after the uncertainty and turmoil of his childhood and the extreme hostility of his guardian, Poe was comfortable with the predictable routine and stability of a peacetime military. He was, after all, only 18 years old. Clearly, Poe also had literary ambitions, even at such a young age. In July 1827, he published a 40-page pamphlet, a collection of verse entitled Tamerlane and Other Poems. Poe used the pseudonym, a Bostonian, still wary of any creditors who might have followed him to New England, debtor's prison still a very real potential legal threat. That this collection made no impact on the popular and critical consciousness is not as important as the work's mere existence. Although he paid to publish the pamphlet himself, Poe could at least now claim to be a published writer. His publisher, one Calvin Thomas, also 18, had previously only printed such items as product labels and handbills, which puts this effort into additional perspective. It is estimated that only 50 copies, priced at approximately 12 cents, were printed and distributed. Poe himself did not retain a copy, and the book was so obscure that even its existence was called into question until a copy was found in 1876 in the British Museum. Today, it is among the rarest and most valued of American literary artifacts. Only 12 editions are known to exist, and an edition auctioned in 2009 by Christie's brought in close to $700,000. Unfortunately, the mundane demands of a military career intruded on Poe's literary pretense. His artillery battery was ordered to Fort Moultrie, Charleston, South Carolina, in November of 1827. Poe would spend 13 months at this location, and years later would use Charleston as a setting for several of his fictional efforts, most notably The Gold Bug. Judging from his subsequent descriptions, Poe's immediate surroundings and existence were pretty bleak. So bleak that even after only 18 months of a five-year enlistment, Poe began to devise some method of terminating the remainder of this obligation. Because he was a minor, Poe's commanding officer agreed to let him out of the army as long as his guardian was officially supportive of this resignation. Poe contacted John Allen for the first time in many months, but his guardian was not only stunned by the news of Poe's menial army position, he was comfortable with some other entity remaining responsible for Poe for the foreseeable future. Predictably, Allen responded that Poe should complete his obligation to the army. Surprisingly, Poe's attitude towards the military does not seem to have affected his overall performance and reputation. By January of 1829, Poe was promoted to the highest possible rank for an enlisted man, Sergeant Major. But this meant that he had reached the limits of potential promotion. Encouraged by some of his commanding officers, Poe now hit on the scheme of getting an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. This would both end his current obligation and change his boring and dreary environment. But this kind of appointment would also require the support and help of John Allen. Coincidentally, Poe and Allen seemed to have settled upon a modest reconciliation, brought about by the death of Allen's wife, Frances Allen. Poe had maintained a much closer relationship with Frances, and he attended her funeral while on leave, a development that would have required Allen's permission and cooperation. 
This event also set off a formal request by both Allen and Poe to get him out of the Army. Essentially, it was stated officially that Poe, while a student at UVA, as a youthful indiscretion, ran off, and his family had not heard from him for several years. Desperation left him no other option but enlistment, and now that a reconciliation had occurred, it was requested that Poe's obligation be canceled. Poe's discharge was granted in April of 1829. Poe would spend the next year, mostly with relatives in Baltimore. There he would await an appointment to West Point, armed with endorsements from his former superiors, an excellent recommendation from his congressman, and a relatively modest reference from John Allen, who mentioned Poe's gambling at college and emphasized that Poe was not his blood relation. Ultimately successful, Poe was the only American literary figure of note to attend West Point. He arrived there in June of 1830. In the interim, before heading to the U.S. Military Academy, Poe was able, in November of 1829, to publish a second book of poems, Alaraf, Tamerlane, and Minor Poems. 250 copies would be produced by a small Baltimore publisher. It is unclear whether or not John Allen had financially subsidized this effort. Early on in Poe's attempts to find a publisher, Allen had refused such aid, but at this point he was grudgingly contributing financial support, and as Poe had no means to advance the publisher money, it is quite possible that Allen finally relented, allowing the second publication to proceed. While it did not generate much attention, it was reviewed and mentioned in some of the literary journals of the day, a smaller improvement on his first effort. It is not surprising that West Point did not provide the long-term career solution that Poe was seeking. The U.S. Military Academy of 1830 was a rigorous, demanding environment that emphasized discipline and a Spartan existence. The day began at sunrise. Classes were held until breakfast at 7 a.m., resumed from 8 until 1 p.m., and after lunch from 2 until 4. Military drill didn't even begin until after another meal and lasted until 9.30, and the day officially ended at 10 p.m. The food was mediocre, the quarters cramped with three men to a room, and chapel attendance was strictly required. Additionally, Poe was older than most of his fellow cadets, had spent time both in the regular army and the previous year among friends and relatives in Baltimore. The strict discipline, the uncomfortable uniform, perpetual academics, lack of any recreational or artistic pursuits, and stifling authority must have been quite a shock. One of the reasons Poe had convinced John Allen and others that West Point would be the perfect place for him was his belief that his army service would allow him to complete his West Point education and get an officer's commission faster than the required four years. It quickly became apparent that this was not the case. John Allen's life would also change when in July 1830, his mistress gave birth to twin sons, and the industrious Allen married another woman, a union that would quickly lead to additional children. This biological offspring diminished any further hope of Poe receiving an inheritance or any substantial long-term financial support. Poe had already permanently alienated John Allen when he wrote in a letter to a debtor and former Army colleague that he had asked, Mr. A a dozen times for the money, but Mr. A is not often very sober. The debtor eventually personally tried to collect the debt from Allen and repeated what Poe had said, eliciting a predictably angry response. While Poe came to the realization that his stepfather might now be irreparably hostile, he also came to the conclusion that West Point and the life of a commissioned army officer was not for him. But again, Poe was faced with the prospect of having to get Allen's permission to leave the school. Not likely. Out of sheer spite, 
Allen would most likely refuse to even entertain the notion and would be intent on keeping his ward the economic responsibility of some other entity. But not to worry. Poe came up with another short-term solution to his current predicament. Starting in January 1831, after an exemplary first semester, Poe began to deliberately disobey orders, miss classes, roll call, and guard duty. And by January 28th, he was already being court-martialed for various charges. He offered no defense, and only bureaucracy held up his dismissal from West Point and the military until March of 1831. With John Allen already livid over his expulsion, Poe chose this occasion to quarrel with Allen's second wife, a development that made any future reconciliation impossible. With Richmond no longer an option, Poe proceeded to Baltimore and the home of one of his closest relatives, his aunt, Maria Clem. Maria Clem and her daughter, Virginia, were also struggling. Maria's husband and father were both deceased, her mother disabled and living on a tiny pension. It was into this household that the neurotic, overly sensitive, irresponsible, and seemingly delusional Edgar Allan Poe would enter in May of 1831. It would seem impossible that Maria Clem would be able to tolerate such an emotionally demanding and difficult personality, his economic deficiency alone enough to eventually ensure his expulsion. Instead, the opposite occurred. Throughout the rest of Poe's life, Maria Clem would provide an emotional support that can only be described as maternal. She also believed in his talent, maintaining a household where Poe could develop his craft, the mundane demands of life kept at bay by his aunt's unwavering devotion. It was from this very humble environment that Edgar Allan Poe began the challenging process of attempting to make a living as a writer. Having by now published a third and also financially unrewarding book of poems, he also began to compose short stories. In a nation of thousands of literary journals and publications buying fiction of all sorts, he quickly began to have some nominal success. His brother Henry had died of cholera in August of 1831, and not much is known about Poe during these early Baltimore years. He spent little time outside of the triangle of his aunt and cousin, essentially friendless and solitary, already a brooding, sensitive man verging on bitterness. He published an occasional story and won a few literary contests that paid a modest amount of money. But poverty would be a constant concern, enough to leave no other alternative but to send conciliatory letters to John Allen. With these letters ignored, Poe made one last attempt to force his way back into the older man's good graces. Understanding that Allen was seriously ill, Poe made an unannounced visit to Richmond on February 14, 1834. Pushing his way by Allen's second wife, Poe proceeded rapidly to Allen's bedroom. When he got there, John Allen, bedridden, angrily told him to leave and threatened to hit him with his cane. When he died six weeks later, Allen's will made good on the man's perpetual threat to leave Poe without a cent. Fortunately for Poe, he was able to cultivate some contacts in Baltimore who were able to help him. John Pendleton Kennedy, a respected and successful literary figure who had helped award Poe a literary prize, recognized that the gifted and promising writer was in dire financial straits. He gave him money and clothes and in June of 1835 got him his first literary job at the Southern Literary Messenger in Richmond, of all places. The publisher, Thomas Willis White, was initially impressed by Poe's intelligence and editorial skills and gave him ample responsibility within all areas of the publication's composition. But Poe quickly became distracted and depressed when he heard that a cousin in Baltimore had asked Virginia Clem to move in with his family. This cousin, Nielsen Poe, was vaguely aware that Edgar Allan Poe was interested in marrying his much younger cousin, and Nielsen did not approve, which wasn't surprising as Virginia was only 12 years old. 
In response, Edgar Allan Poe sent to his Aunt Maria a typically melodramatic and personal letter, proclaiming his deepest love for Virginia and his devotion to Maria, and a promise that he would take care of both of them if they would remain loyal. Poe also began to deal with his loneliness and depression in a fashion that would mark many of the major challenges of his life. He drank heavily. White, although alarmed by the effect of Poe's binges, initially tolerated Poe's behavior. But by the end of September, the publisher had had enough and fired Poe. Now unemployed, Poe still hastily made his way back to Baltimore to personally reconnect with his aunt and cousin. Poe's letter to his aunt had the desired effect, and Virginia declined Nielsen Poe's offer. Both aunt and cousin rejected more promising economic prospects and threw their lot in with Edgar Allan Poe who also promised to support both of them. While in Baltimore, Poe received a letter from his former employer, Thomas Willis White, which was remarkable under the circumstances. In this letter, his former boss, who had only worked with Poe for four months, expressed his deep concern and essentially offered Poe his job back if he would agree not to touch alcohol. He went so far as to offer Poe a place in his own home to keep his former employee on the straight and narrow, and added, How much I regretted parting with you is unknown to anyone on this earth except myself. I was attached to you, and am still, and willingly would I say return. Excusing the flowery language of the day, it is clear that Poe had made quite an impression on White, and Poe agreed to relocate both himself and his aunt and cousin to Richmond. By December 1835, a newly sober Edgar Allan Poe was named the editor of the Southern Literary Messenger. While this allowed a certain degree of newfound stability, It also meant that Poe would spend more time assembling content for the magazine and composing literary criticism, which was a core element of this kind of literary journal. It meant less time for fiction and poetry. Poe's position and salary, while modest, did allow him to make good on his promise to relocate his aunt and cousin. On May 16, 1836, Poe married Virginia Clem. The groom was 27, the bride 14. The specifics regarding when and if Poe enjoyed a physical relationship with his young cousin is a matter of dispute. It is widely believed that initially Poe and his wife's relationship was platonic in nature, but as she grew older, their relationship became more typically romantic. That they were emotionally close and that Virginia Clem practically idolized her husband has never been disputed. Poe improved the circulation of the Southern Literary Messenger, and his criticism gave it a national reputation. But he and publisher White would continue to have a difficult relationship. Poe's constant demands for money and occasionally harsh critical reviews alienated White. Poe's belief that he was underpaid and his frustration with an inability to work on his own fictional material ensured a contentious relationship. Worse, Poe eventually went back on his promise to abstain from alcohol. By the fall of 1836, he was again drinking heavily at times. He would be fired and reinstated in September, and by mutual agreement, Poe left the messenger in December of 1836. Poe moved with his aunt and wife to New York, typically with no job and no specifics other than a continued intent to sell and publish his work. Harper's had rejected a collection of stories in 1836, noting that most had already been published and that he might be better suited to writing a novel. The resulting, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, was the only novel Poe would ever write. Its composition would absorb much of 1837. Some installments would actually be published in the Southern Literary Messenger, and Harper would publish the complete novel in July of 1838. The book takes place in three parts, chronicling a series of fantastic adventures undertaken by the narrator Pym aboard a succession of various ships, Because the book is meant to read like nonfiction, 
It incorporates materials written by various journalists to give it a factual veneer. Starting off in traditional fashion, ultimately it becomes more fantastic and bizarre, abruptly ending with the presumed death of the narrator somewhere near the Antarctic. It did not receive particularly good reviews, and while it did eventually become more influential with writers like Jules Verne, Herman Melville, and H.G. Wells, it was considered at the time a commercial and critical failure. It was published in Great Britain, introducing British readers to Poe for the first time, but because of the lack of copyright restrictions, this was done without any financial compensation. As a result of the financial panic of 1837, the publication of Poe's novel was delayed. In fact, by the time of publication, economic conditions had forced Poe and his family to move to Philadelphia. His only income in New York seems to have stemmed from a boarder who lived with Poe and family for several months. Things improved minutely for Poe in Pennsylvania. In April of 1839, he was able to secure an editor's position at Burton's Weekly for $10 a week. In September of 1839, Poe was able to publish The Fall of the House of Usher, one of his most celebrated stories, and successful enough to convince a Philadelphia publisher, Lee and Blanchard, to release a collection of short stories entitled Tales of the Grotesque and Arabesque. Poe would not receive any money for this effort. Instead, he would be paid in free copies. When the book took two years to sell out, the publishers declined Poe's offer of a follow-up effort. In mid-1840, Poe would become involved in the type of fiasco that typified his professional life. Aware that Thomas Burton, the publisher of Burton's Weekly, had decided to sell the publication, Poe began to plan on pursuing his own effort, entitled Pen Magazine, which aspired to be a finely printed publication with superior fiction and criticism. When Burton became aware of this potential competition, he immediately dismissed Poe, precipitating the usual series of nasty and accusatory letters that seemed to mark most of Poe's business relationships. Nothing came of Penn Magazine, and Poe ultimately was hired to edit Graham's, the magazine combined by the purchaser of Burton's, publisher George Graham. Graham gave Poe a raise to $800 a year and hired assistants that allowed Poe to spend more time on his own fiction. Very quickly, the publication increased its subscription base, and by September 1842, Graham's had a circulation of 40,000 readers, eight times more than when Poe took over the magazine. One of the methods Poe used to arouse interest among the readers was to challenge them to send him encrypted ciphers of every type and description, ciphers which he never failed to decode. Poe's analytical mind then produced The Murders in the Rue Morgue, considered to be the world's first detective story, and the introduction to the character of Auguste Dupin, a forerunner of literary figures ranging from Sherlock Holmes to Jacques Clouseau. The Parisian Dupin has some of the characteristics of Poe himself, quirky but analytically brilliant. Dupin arrives at the solution to two gruesome murders through what Poe calls the process of ratiocination, or precise reasoning and analysis. He would reintroduce Dupin in The Mystery of Marie Roget and The Purloined Letter, thus also creating the first detective series. The modest stability in Poe's life and household was upset in early 1842, when Poe's wife suddenly suffered a life-threatening hemorrhage of the lungs that could only mean that she was afflicted with tuberculosis. While her health would fluctuate for the rest of that year, occasional choking coughing fits and general debilitation and poor nourishment practically guaranteed an eventual early death. Despite this depressing turn of events, Poe composed some of his most celebrated work during this time period, his Mask of the Red Death, 
with its continued allusion to blood and disease, had obvious connections to his wife's condition. The Gold Bug won a $100 contest sponsored in 1843 by a Philadelphia newspaper. Its plot involving cryptography, buried treasure, Captain Kidd, and unusual characters made it Poe's most popular story to date. But despite reproduction in newspapers across the country, Poe was not entitled to royalties beyond the original prize money. Poe's dramatization of guilty, tormented, and criminally insane characters played out in The Black Cat, a tale that has ominous parallels to Poe's own life, its alcoholic narrator impulsively taking an axe to his long-suffering wife after she restrains him from harming their feline pet, who will ultimately be the cause of the murderous husband's arrest. The Telltale Heart depicts an individual, clearly insane and unhinged, who methodically describes the murder of the elderly man he lives with. This character's relationship with the victim is not explained, but the violence and insanity with which he inflicts the death of this man is frightening even by today's standards. It is ultimately the sound of the victim's posthumous beating heart, which the narrator guiltily imagines hearing during a police interrogation that prompts him to suddenly confess his crime to the unwitting investigators. Poe originally meant the story as a grateful effort for the newly founded Boston magazine, The Pioneer, and its editor, James Russell Lowell. Although they initially agreed on a price of $10, it is unclear as to whether Poe has even paid this sum, as the Pioneer quickly folded when Lowell experienced health issues after only several issues were released, and the editor wound up deeply in debt. Poe's impulsive resignation from Graham's in 1842 and his determination to try and finance his own literary journal only contributed to his family's extreme poverty. It was at this time in his life, despondent over his career, depressed about his wife's health, and general uncertainty about the future, that Poe also returned to self-destructive involvement with alcohol. Poe typically did not drink to celebrate or socialize. He drank to escape depression and despair, frequently in the early morning. He also had the misfortune of being susceptible to modest amounts of alcohol, inducing severe intoxication and binges that went on for days. These binges would usually result in apologies to all involved and periods of sobriety that ultimately culminated in another binge. That alcohol did nothing to enhance Poe's personality was evident as early as the comment of an office boy at the Southern Messenger. Mr. Poe was a fine gentleman when he was sober, but when he was drinking, he was about one of the most disagreeable men I have ever met. Poe began to add to his modest income by taking advantage of another money-making opportunity of the era, lecturing. His first attempt at this pastime in Philadelphia on November 21, 1843, was met with an overflow crowd. With some of his recent success and with the potential for paid public speaking, Poe figured it was time for him to try and again crack the center of American literary life, New York City. In April of 1844, again sober, he returned with Virginia to Manhattan. As always, he promised his aunt that he would send for her as soon as he was able. Initially in New York, he supported himself by occasionally lecturing, freelance writing, and ultimately by taking another assistant editor's position at the New York Evening Mirror. He and his wife and his aunt lived in a succession of locations throughout the city, and as always, money was tight. By late 1844, Poe seemed to be gaining some momentum with the publication of The Purloined Letter, in a nationally prominent annual gift anthology distributed around Christmas, the third in a series of stories featuring Auguste Dupin. Within weeks, it was popular enough to be translated and published in France. Poe had also returned to poetry for his next effort, which he consciously composed with an eye toward both critical success and popular appeal. 
Long an admirer of such romantics as Coleridge, Tennyson, and Elizabeth Browning, he deliberately adopted their rhyme schemes. Like Coleridge, Keats, and Shelley before him, he chose a symbolic bird as the main focus of this work, the raven. Typically, this poem delves into several of Poe's techniques and themes. It describes a strange supernatural creature with the ability to communicate with the narrator, a tormented soul conflicted between the memories of his dead lover, Lenore, and the desire to forget her forever before he is completely tortured to madness. Whether the raven finally leaves the narrator in peace or if the bird will remain to perpetually torment a lost soul is left unclear. It is clear that when Poe completed this poem, he knew exactly what he had. Even before its publication in January of 1845, he read it aloud to his contemporaries and would be taken aback if their responses were not absolutely glowing. Poe sold the poem for $9 to the American Review, but also offered a copy to his current editors at the Evening Mirror. It is unclear as to which version actually hit the streets first, but what was utterly apparent was the sensation the poem created. Exceeding any popularity for any previous American work, the poem was copied and reprinted throughout the United States, prompted countless mediocre attempts at replication and even parodies. Overnight, Poe achieved the celebrity and success that he had sought for so long. He was 36 years old. Poe was already attempting to move on from the Evening Mirror before the end of 1844, and in February of 1845, he became co-editor of the Broadway Journal. The journal was a serious magazine of literary and artistic criticism. More importantly, Poe would be paid a salary plus a third of the publication's profits. Seemingly, Poe had also achieved his lifelong dream of editorial autonomy combined with a share of profitability. Unfortunately, Poe would use his newfound stature to utilize what he referred to as his tomahawk, extremely harsh criticism when he felt it appropriate. In March of 1845, he took on one of the most respected literary figures of the day, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, implying that Longfellow was both unoriginal and a plagiarist. Anonymously written responses made Poe look foolish, and Longfellow stayed above what became known in literary circles as the Longfellow War. This exchange only served to make Poe look spiteful and to alienate the literary establishment. The success of The Raven prompted publication of a collection of 12 of Poe's short stories in June of 1845 and a collection of poems, including The Raven, in December of the same year. Initially, Poe was able to capitalize on his fame through the lecture circuit, but after a lengthy period of sobriety ended in April of 1845, he damaged his reputation further by either unpredictably canceling lectures or condescendingly insulting his audience, most notably in Boston in October of 1845. Even worse, his fellow publishers walked away from the Broadway Journal, thinking it was doomed. Poe bought it for a promissory note of $50, but the Broadway Journal failed two months later and the promissory note went unpaid. Poe never worked again. Only a year after the fame of The Raven, he was reduced to writing letters to friends and associates pleading for money, this one to a former editor of his recent story collection. I am dreadfully sick and depressed, but still myself. I seem to have just awakened from some horrible dream in which all was confusion and suffering. I really believe that I have been mad, but indeed I have had abundant reason to be so. My object in writing you this note is again to beg your aid. Symbolically, in June of 1846, Poe moved 14 miles north of the business center of New York to a small cottage in Fordham in the Bronx. He made the rent by skewering many of his former literary associates in The Literati of New York, published in a gossipy journal of the day. 
At least the same journal would also publish one of Poe's finer works, The Cask of Amontillado, in which the narrator leads a fellow nobleman who has insulted him into a deep catacomb. Promising the man a fine sherry, he suddenly chains his antagonist to a wall and then slowly bricks him up for eternity, a not very thinly veiled revenge fantasy from Poe's own current existence. Completely isolated in the Bronx, Poe's situation disintegrated. He continued to drink heavily, essentially shunned professionally. His economic situation grew so pitiful that during the Christmas season, several newspaper editors published a notice that both Poe and his wife were friendless and without money. A small collection was raised, but with the onset of winter, his wife's condition worsened, the lack of heat and proper diet no doubt contributing to her chronic consumption. She would last until January 30, 1847, dying at the age of 24. To avoid a pauper's grave, she was buried in Poe's sympathetic landlord's family crypt. Poe and Maria Clem remained in the Bronx, and 1847 started off reasonably well when he prevailed in a libel suit that provided a few hundred dollars. But Poe would write very little in 1847, depressed, distracted, and his own health now deteriorating. He would spend much of 1848 still clinging to the idea of financing his own literary magazine, The Stylus. He somehow got the idea that a return to Richmond was his last best hope at realizing this objective. The trip was a three-week debacle of drunkenness and an abject embarrassment. With his professional life at a dead end, Poe turned to another alternative to resuscitate his economic fortunes, marriage. With celebrity, Poe became the object of female attention that continued throughout the decade of the 1840s. Poe became quite friendly with some of these women, and now he decided that one of them, Sarah Helen Whitman, six years older than Poe at 45, was worthy of more serious pursuit. A widow, Helen Whitman lived in Providence, Rhode Island, and traveled within literary and intellectual circles. In 1848, Poe and Helen Whitman exchanged correspondence, and Poe showed up in Providence without notice on September 21st, and within days, hastily proposed marriage. Poe had literally begged her to rescue him and reinvigorate his genius, but Helen said that she would have to think it over. Ultimately, aware of the rumors of drunkenness and instability, Helen turned him down. Poe didn't give up, sending her several typically emotional letters imploring her to change her mind. Little did Helen know that Poe was sending similar letters to another woman with which he shared a platonic relationship, Annie Richmond. Poe chose this time to take a train back to Providence, but then, after purchasing two ounces of laudanum and without seeing Helen Richmond, he boarded a train to Boston, got off and intent on mailing a suicide note to Annie Richmond to remind her to attend his funeral, he took half of the laudanum before he made it to the post office. Although he survived by vomiting up the drug, it made him dreadfully ill. Four days later, possibly at the request of Helen Whitman, Poe sat for perhaps his most famous daguerreotype, ravaged by a suicide attempt and looking much older than his 39 years. Poe also proceeded to get exceedingly drunk, again begging Helen Whitman to save him. Later she would remember. He came alone to my mother's house in a state of wild and delirious excitement, calling upon me to save him from some terrible impending doom. The tones of his voice were appalling and rang throughout the house. Never have I heard anything so awful. It was long before I could nerve myself to see him. My mother was with him more than two hours before I entered the room. He hailed me as an angel sent to save him from perdition. When my mother requested me to have a cup of strong coffee prepared for him, he clung so frantically as to tear away a piece of the muslin dress I wore. Strangely enough, Helen Whitman agreed to marry Poe, of course on the condition that he would abstain from drinking. Helen's mother wasn't so supportive. 
she obtained sole legal control of the family estate to prevent any access by Poe, although he signed off on the changes. Many individuals counseled against the marriage, including Maria Clem, but Poe and Helen continued forward and announced that Christmas, 1848, would be their wedding day. The couple got within days of the event when Helen was mysteriously made aware that Poe had recently broken his pledge of abstinence. She canceled the wedding, and when Poe tried to convince her that she was mistaken, Helen's mother ended the discussion. Poe angrily left, and Helen Whitman never saw him again. A few weeks later, she did receive the obligatory histrionic letters from Poe, but never answered, not wanting to encourage any hope of a reconciliation. In May of 1849, Poe would complete his last great work, the poem Annabel Lee. On June 29th, he left New York intent on Richmond and a lecture. Do not fear for Eddie, he called to his aunt as he left the Fordham Cottage. But Poe only got as far as Philadelphia, where he got off the train and drank himself into arrest and incarceration for public drunkenness. Wildly disheveled, having lost the valise that contained his lecture, he showed up at the office of John Sartain, an artist he had worked with in better days. He told Sartain wild tales that indicated that Poe was probably in the grip of delirium tremens. It would take two weeks for Poe to recuperate and borrow enough money to make it to Richmond. Even without his lost lecture notes, Poe gave a flawless presentation on four separate occasions in Richmond and Norfolk. While in Richmond, Poe attempted to rekindle a very old relationship. This time, it was with Sarah Elmira Royster Shelton, his former next-door neighbor and 15-year-old sweetheart. Elmira's husband, Alexander, a wealthy businessman, had died in 1844, leaving behind a large estate. Although the will stipulated that Elmira would lose three-quarters of the bequest upon remarriage and her family was hostile, Poe quickly proposed and insisted upon an immediate response. It is unclear whether Elmira Royster Shelton ever agreed to marry Edgar Allan Poe, but on September 27th, Poe left by steamer for New York. There he intended to settle his affairs, fetch his aunt, and return to Richmond, where he at least believed his marriage would eventually take place. On the way to New York, Poe's ship stopped in Baltimore on September 28th. He went ashore and, possibly with old associates or even total strangers, it is believed he decided to have a sociable drink. Poe had been sober for three months, on his best behavior while lecturing and courting Elmira. He'd even joined the Richmond chapter of the Sons of Temperance. Clearly, that went out the window in Baltimore. The next anyone would hear of Poe would be on October 3rd, when a stranger found him, either semi-conscious in the street or inside a nearby tavern. A friend of Poe's, Joseph Snodgrass, received a note from this individual informing him that his acquaintance, Edgar A. Poe, was in great distress. When Snodgrass arrived, it was clear that Poe was seriously impaired or ill and that he should be hospitalized. Poe was placed in a cell normally reserved for the severely alcoholic, and although he regained consciousness two days later, he was at times delirious and quite confused, unable to speak coherently. According to his doctor, he ultimately became quiet and still for a few hours before suddenly saying softly, Lord, help my poor soul. Poe died shortly thereafter at 5 o'clock in the morning on October 7, 1849. As if Poe had not suffered enough in life, upon his death, his literary estate and even personal reputation came under immediate attack. Rufus Griswold was a prominent anthologist who published the very popular The Poets and Poetry of America throughout the 1840s. Wanting to be included in this anthology, Poe naturally attempted to cultivate Griswold, and Griswold, wanting Poe's critical approval, included occasional poems and corresponded with Poe. 
At best, this was merely a business relationship. At times, Poe lashed out at Griswold, both in criticism and lectures, that Griswold was the purveyor of the type of mediocre literature that Poe would routinely savage in his critical columns. Poe must have felt that their occasional disputes were behind them late in life, because in his final years, he is alleged to have appointed Griswold the executor of his literary estate. Unfortunately, Poe could not have been more mistaken in underestimating the deep animosity that Griswold still harbored for him. Within two days of Poe's death, Griswold, using the pseudonym Ludwig, published a lengthy obituary in the prominent New York Daily Tribune, which disparaged Poe's professional criticism, mentioned his wife's death amidst extreme poverty, and included such personal descriptions as, he walked the streets in madness or melancholy, with lips moving in indistinct curses. Because of his reputation as a Baptist minister and respected anthologist, Griswold's slanderous profile gained traction with the press and public and severely damaged Poe's reputation. Fortunately, the obituary included Annabelle Lee. While still alive, Poe was so determined to see it published that he gave it to Griswold, sold it to the editor of the Southern Messenger to repay a $5 debt, and sold it again to John Sartain. It would be published by all three men within months of Poe's death. Following his deliberate slander, Rufus Griswold then set upon a far more nefarious scheme. By October 20th, Griswold had already secured a document from Maria Clem that conferred to him the power of attorney to represent her in publishing all of Poe's works. Technically, because Poe died intestate, Rosalie, Poe's sister, was legally the benefactor of his estate. But Maria Clem felt that based on her years of helping Poe, that she should receive whatever material benefit might ensue. Rosalie, a not particularly sophisticated or intelligent individual, was outwitted by this legal maneuver. Although no concrete agreement consigning executor status to Griswold ever materialized, he hastily assembled two volumes of Poe's work, wrote an introduction describing the publication as economically benefiting Maria Clem, and pocketed any proceeds from this effort, designed to rapidly capitalize on Poe's untimely death. Griswold also kept whatever original manuscripts he had been given. In return, he merely provided Maria Clem six copies of the initial two-volume set for her to sell. Neither Maria Clem or Rosalie Poe ever received any money from their brother's literary legacy. Maria Clem would live with a succession of acquaintances until entering a Baltimore charity home where she died penniless in 1871. She was buried in the family plot near her son-in-law's unmarked grave. Rosalie Poe lived with the Mackenzies in Richmond until the Civil War forced the family to disintegrate. Rosalie spent the rest of her days attempting to peddle photos and fake autographs of her famous brother until Sheik succumbed in a Washington, D.C. home for the poor in 1874. Griswold would continue to profit by publishing volumes of Poe's work and including additionally slanderous biographical material. According to these memoirs, Poe had been kicked out of UVA in the Army, had fabricated Tamerlane, and had attempted to seduce John Allen's second wife. Griswold's description of Poe would remain in the public's imagination until a new, more accurate, and sympathetic biography appeared in 1875. The appearance of this biography at this time was not a coincidence. In Baltimore, there was a posthumous civic appreciation for Poe that began to collectively shame the city into constructing at least some memorial to the dead writer. Poe had been hastily buried by less than a dozen mourners in an unmarked grave in the family plot of some of his Baltimore cousins. The aforementioned Nielsen Poe would eventually order a headstone in 1860 for his relative, but... Unbelievably, this marker would be utterly destroyed when a train derailed and damaged the contents of the monument yard where the stone had been engraved. 
Nielsen couldn't afford another gravestone. Following the distraction of the Civil War, a group of Baltimore public educators began a campaign within the school system to appropriately memorialize Edgar Allan Poe. It took 10 years, but the pennies and nickels collected by students, as well as a sizable donation from a Philadelphia newspaper owner, eventually provided the funds for a suitable monument. The impressive memorial was dedicated with great fanfare on November 17, 1875. Poe and his Aunt Maria Clem were exhumed and reburied within an impressive marble structure. This process may have answered one of the many enduring mysteries concerning Poe's life and death. Buried in as modestly a fashion as possible, when Poe's cheap coffin was dug up, it disintegrated and his skeletal remains were re-examined. Observers spoke of seeing and hearing Poe's shrunken, hardened brain rattling around inside his skull. But brain matter would have long since decayed completely, and the large calcified remnant could have only been a brain tumor. This physical condition would have explained many of Poe's complaints and erratic behaviors in his final years. Brain cancer is only one of the many possible causes of Poe's death that historians have put forth over the years. Poe died without a will. He also died without an autopsy. We are left to ponder alcohol poisoning, diabetic coma, meningitis, delirium tremens, epilepsy, syphilis, heart disease, hypoglycemia as a result of liver damage, cirrhosis, and even rabies as possible culprits. That Poe disappeared around a Baltimore election day in which hapless victims were kept drunk and forced into illegally voting continuously, or that he even might have been savagely beaten by the relatives of Elmira Royster to prevent her subsequent marriage to Poe, have both been seriously analyzed. Ultimately, even his attending physician's account of Poe's last words has been called into question. Dr. John Joseph Moran appeared on the lecture circuit for many years, his lectures concerning Poe's death becoming more dramatic and theatrical with each retelling. Ten years after Poe and his aunt were exhumed and reburied within the Westminster Cemetery, a few blocks from Baltimore's Inner Harbor, Virginia Clem Poe's remains were located and interred next to her husband. Poe seems to have foretold this eventuality in his last great work, Annabelle Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee, and the stars never rise, but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And so all the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride, in her sepulcher there by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea. The hundreds of tourists who visit the site of his grave daily the millions of editions and copies of Poe's work that have been sold after his death, and the acclaim that he enjoys as one of America's most celebrated and beloved literary figures would have only added to the great pride that Poe had expressed in a letter in 1845. I have perseveringly struggled against a thousand difficulties and have succeeded, although not in making money, still in attaining a position in the world of letters of which, under the circumstances, I have no reason to be ashamed. Thank you for listening to this podcast about Edgar Allan Poe. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Edgar Allan Poe, A Critical Biography by Arthur Hobson Quinn. Edgar Allan Poe, His Life and Legacy by Jeffrey Myers, and Edgar Allan Poe, The Fever Called Living by Paul Collins. For information on how to access this material, 
And for additional podcasts, please visit my website at someveryfamouspeople.com.